Good morning. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series from the book of Isaiah that will lead us through the four Sundays of Advent. Now if you're a new Christian or if you grew up in a tradition that didn't follow the church calendar, then it may surprise you to learn that Advent is different from Christmas. And, and this puts us a little bit out of sync with the culture around us because, of course, for many people, the Christmas season began the moment they woke up from their turkey nap on Thanksgiving Day. But for Christians who follow a different calendar, the Christmas season is still weeks away. Starting today, this is the fourth Sunday before Christmas and lasting until sundown on Christmas Eve, we're in the season of Advent. It's a season of waiting and longing for the coming of Christ. And now certainly we're waiting for Christmas when we'll celebrate the birth of our Savior. We're not boycotting that. We're excited about that. We look forward to that. We're counting down the days to that. And we imagine ourselves as Old Testament Israel waiting for that. But more primarily, during Advent, we're waiting for the second coming of Christ, when He will return to the earth and get rid of all the evil and reign forever. And since that's the focus of Advent, the Scripture readings throughout the worship service tend to lack that baby Jesus vibe that we might have expected. It's a lot more judgment and apocalyptic themes, right? Now, as we get closer to Christmas, our attention will gradually shift to Jesus' birth, and you'll notice that in the readings and in the feel of the worship service. But until then, we are waiting and setting our attention fully on the return of our Lord Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we're idle or passive. Advent is a season of action. We know from the biblical story that our God breaks in on His world. He's done it once, and He'll do it again. And in the meantime, we pray that He'll break into our hearts, that He'll stir up whatever is stagnant or complacent or cold within us and shape us into the people who love Him and love His kingdom. That's what Advent is all about. Now... Meet Isaiah, the prince of the prophets, is what many people have called him. God gave him a specific calling. He was to prepare the people of Israel for their coming Messiah, God's promised king who would deliver them from their sins and from their enemies and who would bring in an era of lasting peace. But you know, Isaiah had his work cut out for him. The people of Israel were stagnant and complacent, the frozen chosen. They didn't care for the poor. They were filling Jerusalem with all kinds of injustices like bribery and theft and murder. And worst of all, their worship over time had slid into a dead ritualism where they focused merely on the externals and the rituals rather than the heart behind the action. These people needed to be shocked 
back into life. They needed to be defibrillated and shaken up. And, you know, I think it would be easy for us centuries later to look back and to stand in judgment on the people of Israel. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we might admit that we could use from time to time a little shaking up ourselves, each in our own individual way. What are those bad habits that we've given up on trying to stop? What are those self-centered pursuits that keep pushing, that we keep pushing for and pushing for at the expense of those we love? Where have we grown indifferent in our relationship with God? These are the questions we need to be asking ourselves this time of year. Isaiah will be our tour guide through the Advent season. And in our passage for this morning, Isaiah chapter 2, thank you Robert for reading, Isaiah gives us a grand vision of where God is headed with history. And this morning I'd like for us to consider what Isaiah is saying to us in two parts. First in verses 2 through 4 we'll look at Isaiah's announcement to us. And then in verse 5, we'll look at Isaiah's invitation to us. So first, in verses 2 through 4, Isaiah makes this great announcement to us that God will break in on the world as we know it. This reality is the beautiful backdrop to the season of Advent. In all of our penitence and self-examination, we need to remember from the outset that God has not abandoned us. And and neither has he abandoned his world. So we're not hopeless. We can be confident that one day God will make us and everything around us right again. And Isaiah tells us in these few verses what this restoration will look like on a global scale. He tells us in verse 2 that God will establish his kingdom. He says, it shall come to pass... In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Mountaintops were the sacred spaces of the ancient world. Many of the ancients believed that the gods lived on top of the highest mountains. And you can think of Mount Zeus, uh, Zeus on Mount Olympus, Baal on Mount Cassius, and the list could go on and on and on. But Isaiah is saying that one day, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is the temple mount, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, will be exalted as the highest mountain of all. Now, if we were to take Isaiah literally, we would be left with a pretty astonishing picture. Think of a mountain the size of Massanutten, and actually about 500 feet shorter suddenly towering over Mount Everest. That would be something like Rohan Hewavita doing a slam dunk over LeBron James. (laughs) Give it time, it might happen. But of course, Isaiah is speaking metaphorically, isn't he? He's pointing us into the mist of the future, and he's telling us that when God really establishes his kingdom on earth, All the false gods of this world will be utterly put to shame. And this promise had enormous weight for the nation of Israel. You may recall 
how often the people of Israel were tempted to worship the gods of the other nations. But it also has enormous weight for us. Isaiah is telling us that one day, every idol that vies for our attention, every urge that we have for self-promotion, every insincere motive, every evil thought that gives soil to our actions will totally be done away with. God will break in on our world and establish Himself as the one true God. He'll be the king, and He won't have any rivals. Now, this is one of our faith's exclusive truth claims, isn't it? We live in a culture that gives every belief a trophy. Every God gets a participation award, regardless of whether they win or lose or even show up. And I think that mentality was summed up by my history professor in college who said, there are many roads that lead to God, just make sure you're on one of them. But Isaiah sees history differently. He says there's only one God. There's only one road to God. And while this reality might send shockwaves through our current culture, and even in the culture in Isaiah's day, Isaiah envisions a day when there will be a great reversal, a great change of mind. He says that when God establishes His kingdom, the floodgates will open and all the nations will come streaming to worship Him. Look at the end of verse 2. And all the nations shall flow to it. Now, do we have any hikers in the room? Have you ever seen a river streaming uphill? I didn't think so. But Isaiah does. Isaiah sees a river of humanity flowing uphill to worship the God of Israel. Verse 3, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Right, little Mount Zion. To the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You know, later in this book, Isaiah will describe all of humanity like she as sheep who have gone astray. But here he tells us about a wild and loving God who breaks in on the world and draws people to himself. And one day, he's really going to outdo himself. <laughs> there will be a global revival, one that we can hardly imagine, and people will come from everywhere to worship God and learn his ways. And as a result of this massive influx of worshipers, Isaiah says, the world will be a radically different place. He tells us in verse 4, essentially, that there's going to be peace on earth. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. How about that? The whole world will become the friendly city. It's about time they took their cue from us, right? But notice, this isn't just any peace. 
No, this peace comes from knowing and loving the one true God. The nations are at peace because they've submitted to the king. Any other foundation for peace is a delusion. And what's more, several commentaries have argued convincingly, I believe, that what Isaiah is talking about here is not just freedom from war, but also freedom from argument and conflict. Imagine a world where friendships don't wither away, where siblings don't bicker and compete with one another, where spouses don't argue with one another. A world where my wife just knows from the outset that I'm right. <laughs> no, this is a world, Isaiah says, where everyone understands where one another and where there is real and total peace. It's the world we all want. It's the world that would have been Eden had it lasted forever. But the overarching question we're left with is, when will this happen? When will God do this? And Isaiah gives us only one clue. He says at the very beginning of our passage of verse 2, that all these events will come to pass in the latter days or in the last days. Now, at first glance, that seems like a really long way off. But we'd be mistaken to think that the last days points only to the distant future. Because the New Testament says that you and I are living in the last days right now. For instance, the book of Hebrews begins by telling us that the last days began when God sent His Son into the world. Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, what does that mean? It means that God has already broken in on the world and begun to fulfill Isaiah's vision in the person of Jesus Christ. So just to show you what's going on here, Isaiah 2 tells us that Mount Zion will be exalted. Hebrews 12 says that when we come to Jesus, we've come to Mount Zion. Isaiah 2 speaks of God drawing the nations to worship Him. Jesus says in John 12 that when He's lifted, from the, lifted up from the earth, speaking of His death, He will draw all men to Himself. Isaiah 2 describes peace on earth. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Jesus brings peace on earth by dying for His enemies. So it should be clear. We are living right now in the last leg of God's great story. The only thing left between us and the finish line is the return, the advent of our Lord Jesus. And for that, we wait and we pray. But do we really? Do we long for Jesus to return? Do we really long for it and hope for it? The front of your worship guide has the last words of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. I wonder if we can sometimes say that with our fingers crossed. 
like St. Augustine, who before he was converted prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) But isn't that often how we feel about the end of history, especially young people? We think God's world is so good. There's so much here to see and enjoy and experience and accomplish. And it's true. For all of its brokenness, God's world is still very, very good. And it would be so easy for us to say, come Lord Jesus, but not yet. N.T. Wright has described the Christian life as learning to live appropriately between the two comings of Jesus. During Advent, we slow down and ask God to show us whether we love the world or whether we worship it. And if there are idols, a lust for entertainment, a disordered love for food and drink, a greedy spirit, an unhealthy romantic relationship, if there are idols, we break them in faith because we know from Isaiah's vision that eternity will be far better than we could ever imagine. So that's Isaiah's announcement to us. God will break in on the world as we know it. So get ready and get excited. And then in verse 5, he gives us this open invitation. He invites us to walk in the light of the Lord. He says, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Some of you know that I grew up in Kentucky. Don't hold that against me. And as a Kentuckian, I've seen my fair share of Kentucky Derbies. If you've ever watched the Kentucky Derby on TV, you'd probably agree that it's one of the most intense competitions in the world. The newspapers call it the fastest two minutes in sports. Because anything can happen. And the end of the race can look so different from the beginning, right? But my favorite part of watching the Kentucky Derby has always been the replay. When every horse on the screen gets dark and only the winning horse is highlighted. And what I've noticed throughout the years is that the winning horses normally start the race in obscurity near the back. And then often, very subtly, and gradually, they begin to pass one horse after another until they finally make their way to the front and win the race. And every year, I find it's just amazing to watch. It's my favorite part. That replay is a little bit like what Isaiah has done for us in this passage. He's shown us the end of the race, and now he's highlighting our role on the winning team. He says, walk in the light. And we see this phrase all throughout the Bible, don't we? It nearly always means live differently from the world around you. We know where history is headed. Now it's time to live in the light of God's coming kingdom. It's time to be unashamed in our witness for Christ. It's time to stop picking and choosing which of God's commandments we will obey. 
In short, it's time to go all in. Jesus has opened the door to new creation. It's time to live like those who will live and reign forever with Him. And the remarkable thing about living this way is that when we walk in God's light, we actually end up providing light for others too. That was Israel's mission, remember? A light for the nations. And it's our mission too. Remember, Jesus has sent us out from the book of Acts as His witnesses. But behind the curtain, He is mysteriously drawing all kinds of people to Himself. People from every tongue and tribe and nation. So let's walk in the light. And let's ask Jesus to use our witness this week at school, at work, in our neighborhoods to bring the people of this valley into the kingdom. We have a lot to do this Advent. And in the coming days, as we read the Scriptures and spend time in prayer, God will show us places in our hearts where we need to make room for His coming. And that's a very good thing. That's part of what Advent is all about. But let's also remember, as we come to the table this morning, that the same God who calls us to walk in His light gives us food for our journey. That He doesn't simply tell us what we need to do, but in Christ, He breaks in on us, He walks with us, and He helps us to be His Advent people week after week after week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.